<laughs> My name is also Ryan. Uh, I'm pastor of discipleship at Perimeter Church, and I've been able to be here with you guys a few times, but not in this building. And so it's really cool to be here. I, I was in the school the last couple of times, so it's great to be with you. Uh, my wife is Marianne. She's right here, and we've got two little kiddos. One is almost four, and the other is... See, I've got this problem. Before you start counting in years, you have to count by months. And I stay on the same month for like three months, but that doesn't count. So he's, I'm going to say 19 months, but he's getting farther along in that. So, um, it's, but it's really exciting to be here. Some of you are familiar with the Enneagram. I am not. But everybody talks about it, so I figured I needed to learn a little bit about what it was all about. And so my wife was reading a book, The Road Back to You, and uh, I decided to try to figure out what I was and was kind of skimming through all of them and found out that I'm a six. And if you're like me, when it comes to the Enneagram, somebody says a number and you're like, oh, neat. <laughs> what does that mean? So uh, I've been talking to people. The fun part is in the chapter, the, the title of the chapter for the person who is a six it's called The Loyalist. And then you read it, and it sounds like a pessimist. <laughs> so I, I appreciate the positive spin on it. But the quote in the book at the top of the chapter is from Stephen King, which should already get you thinking in a certain direction, right? And, and it says this, there's no harm in hoping for the best as long as you're prepared for the worst. That's nice. Unfortunately, it sounds a little bit like me all the time. It's not that I'm just like always down, it's just that I kind of naturally expect things to go terribly wrong. I don't tell people that, I just kind of internalize it. Uh, I was talking to a friend this week who also said he was a six, and he said, I just call it pre-traumatic stress syndrome. <laughs> I like that, pre-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a lecture from a guy named Andy Crouch, who I think is a brilliant thinker, and he, he said this, and I thought this was so helpful. He said, hope without honesty is naive. Hope without honesty is naive, but honesty without hope is cynicism. It's like, oh, you got me. Uh, if you've been here and hearing the, the series on Genesis, where, where this church has been for a while, and especially the past few weeks, you're kind of going, is this really good? I mean, you get this creation, and it's wonderful. And it seems like at chapter 3, things took a hard left turn, and it seems pretty bad. And then you, you hear about the flood, and if you heard Brandon last week, that's not necessarily, uh, at least the beginning of the flood story is not something you want to plaster in a nursery. Uh, because it's God's global judgment on the world, and you're kind of thinking, is this good? Something is really, really wrong about this, and I don't really see much of a silver lining when the whole world just got destroyed because of sin. But here's the deal. <laughs> Last week was a little bit unfair to Brandon because he, he ended the story with, with the end of the flood, but not God's promise. And so we're going to turn the corner to hope that if you're, if you're a reader of Genesis, you are pretty much exhausted by the time you get to chapter 9. And you desperately need a breath of fresh air. And so that's what this chapter does. Chapter 9 turns the corner and says, in the face of all of this hopelessness, 
God is still working. Ryan just mentioned God is at work in suffering, and it's mysterious, and we don't quite understand it. But he is at work, and that's what chapter 9 is doing for us. It's reminding us that in the middle of a world that's totally chaotic, God has not been gone. That might sound a little familiar today too, right? If you've listened to any campaign ad, literally the whole world is dependent on January in Georgia. No matter what side you're on, right? Everything is at stake. The world might end. No, no, it won't. But the narrative feels like that. If you watch the news, it feels like everything is at stake. With COVID, it feels like this world is in a place we've never seen it before. Maybe personally, things are going on for you. Regardless of the year 2020, it seems like everything is utterly hopeless and just getting worse. God hasn't left. He is still at work. And I want us to remember that, especially if you're a six, like me. I think even circumstantially, if you're not prone naturally to a cynicism or pessimism this year, circumstantially is driving a lot of us that way. And so I want us to hear Genesis 9 in that light as well. <clears throat> and we're going to see in this chapter that God is always preserving his people, that God is still giving us a purpose, not putting us on the sideline and that he is lavishing his grace. So, uh, these verses that you've been reading, like I said, they're the conclusion of a narrative. And so everything has been leading up to this, and as everything has been leading up to this, we need to remember where we've come from. But before we do that, I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word that is truth, and I, I beg you today to bring hope to each of us in a powerful way. And I, I ask that for myself. As Lord, I am so prone to be a cynic um, and not to rest in peace. And so, Lord, would you give us that today? Would the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? Amen. So, where have we come? God created the world. It was good. He created man and woman, and it was very good. And so things seem up, and then Genesis 3 happens, the fall happens. The fall is almost an unfortunate term, right? The cosmic rebellion against God, that was intentional. A fall I, I can do accidentally. But, but this was something against the God of the universe, and it immediately brought destruction, not only to Adam and Eve, because they would die. They wouldn't live in eternity in the garden that God had created for them and be with him, but also destruction relationally. They, they hid from each other and God. They were ashamed. They blamed each other. And, and what sin does is it doesn't just uh, offend people. It destroys people. It destroys us and it destroys those around us. And it actually also destroyed the world. The physical world suffered because of Adam and Eve's sin. But in Genesis 3.15, God promises to the woman, through your offspring, through your seed, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. And so if you're a good reader, right, the next thing that happens is they have kids. And you're thinking, okay, God made a promise that through the offspring of this woman, the serpent would be crushed. And they have a, a child named Cain. And you're like, okay, maybe this is the one, right? And then he gets a little jealous with his brother and he kills him. I'm like, okay, maybe not Cain. Think, things are not going well. And then you get exactly what you would expect in a good captivating story. 
two chapters of genealogies, <laughs> right? But, but if you're reading the story, Genesis 3, it said there's going to be the offspring of a woman who saves the day, right? It wasn't Cain, so who's it going to be? We're going to trace Cain's line. And if we trace Cain's line, and this is what happens in chapter 4, uh, it kind of ends with this guy named Lamech. And he sings a song to his wives, a beautiful love poem. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Isn't that a fun way to call your own wives? You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So where have we gone? A few generations down, literally mass murder. You go from Cain killing his brother, which is terrible, and literally the opposite of be fruitful and multiply, right? The, the core of God's commission to man be fruitful and multiply. If you're killing people, you're not multiplying. And then you get this guy who's literally boasting through song about how many people he's killed. <laughs> this story is not looking good. So we get another genealogy in chapter 5. Adam and Eve have another son, and his name is Seth. And you follow the genealogy of Seth all the way down, and he's, he's got another, I guess this is a distant, distant cousin, but another guy named Lamech. And this Lamech has a son, and this Lamech's son is named Noah. And then the story dramatically slows down. Because if, if you're reading the genealogy, these people are living like six, eight, nine hundred years. I don't know how that works, but it does. That's what happened. And so you've literally been flying through at least a thousand years of history, if not more. And then suddenly the, the, the narrative just comes to a, a screeching halt, and you get a long story about one guy. So the world has been going for a long time, and things have been getting to this point, mass murder. But maybe there's another offspring. Maybe this is the answer that Genesis 3, 15 has been begging for. And we get this little hint at the very beginning in, in chapter 6, verse 18. I'm not going to read it yet because we're going to get to it again later. But, but basically, God says to Noah, God hasn't been talking to anybody really since Cain. And all this history has gone on. And then God speaks to Noah and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, build a boat, because I'm going to destroy everything else. And you get, you get this sense that things have gone terribly wrong, but something is changing. God is entering into a relationship with a person, and, and hope begins to glimmer in the midst of a really, really bad situation. The Bible is absolutely loaded with stories of God's preservation in total hopelessness. I mean, I don't know how long you're going to be in Genesis, what, Ryan, the next seven, eight years? Probably? Okay, yeah. So if you keep paying attention to the book of Genesis, it is over and over and over again, total hopelessness but God. Abram and Sarah, they can't have kids, and they're like 100 years old, literally. Physically, they just can't do that. But God provides a son. You think about the story of Joseph. He gets sold as a slave, and then famine hits. His family's about to die. And if you're reading Genesis well, you're thinking, who's this, who's this offspring of the woman? And it seems like the family line's about to die. Joseph goes to prison. He becomes second right hand of Pharaoh. 
He stores a bunch of food and ends up saving his family in another country because he was a wise steward of the food. And at the end of this whole story of hopelessness and God's preservation, you get Joseph who's kind of peeking behind the curtain of history and saying in Genesis 50 verses 20 and 21, it's almost the conclusion of the whole book of Genesis. As for you, you meant evil against me, talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. I love that sentence. Because for a cynic, it says, hey, God's been at work this whole time. You remember, everything looked as hopeless as it could be. And literally it was unless God, the creator of the universe, acted. And he does over and over and over again. If you jump, it's Christmas time, right? So if we jump to Luke and you're being introduced to Jesus, what is the introduction that you see over and over in the Gospels? You start with everybody's greatest anticipation, another genealogy, right? (laughs) Why? Because because it's talking about Genesis 3.15. It's saying there is going to be somebody who comes through this woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And in Luke's genealogy, he goes from Seth to Noah, and, and then back to Adam. No, that's Noah, Seth, Adam. It, it goes that way, right? But Noah's there because God was preserving a line. And through Noah, a Savior came. Maybe about 4,000 years later, but through Noah, a Savior did come. Uh, I, I just kind of threw out 4,000 years later, There's been a long time in those genealogies in Genesis 4 and 5, like longer than the U.S. has been a nation. When Israel went to slavery in the Exodus and came back out, they were there 400 years, also longer than the U.S. has been a nation. There are times when it seems like hopelessness lasts forever. There is no way out of this. I feel hopeless in like an hour's wait, right? This is hundreds of years. We serve a God who is not just sovereign over history. He writes history. He's not gone, even if it seems like a long time. Even when it seems like the whole world has totally gone chaotic, he's not gone. I bet it was worse in Noah's day. I can't promise that. I don't know. But God did wipe out all of humanity and the rest of the world except for Noah because it was that bad. But God wasn't gone. He wasn't absent. Um, I love Psalm 78. I'm not going to read it now, but maybe good afternoon reading. The psalmist is looking at somebody who is rich and happy and evil, and he's looking at himself and going, why him, God? How come he's got it all, and I'm trying to follow you, and my life is awful? And then he says, but I went to the temple of God, and I saw his end. And what essentially happens is the psalmist goes, I started looking at life in in the scope of a God who reigns over everything, and not just my last few years. And it changed my perspective. Maybe that's what we need this year, is to take a more above-history perspective of the world. No matter what happens over these next few months, God has not been dethroned. 
no matter what happens in the world, we have brothers and sisters in China who are being put in prison because they gather like this every week. God has not been dethroned. As a matter of fact, he's working out his good, even through something that seems utterly hopeless. So people have got to remember that. Take hope, even when things seem as bad as they can get. God isn't afraid. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. He's working. He's working to preserve you and his people. God starts over, though, doesn't he? He starts over. He wipes everything out. As a matter of fact, when God starts over, he tells the creation story again. I don't know if you caught the language. Let me read for you, actually, in, uh, in uh, chapter 9, the first seven verses. See if anything sounds familiar. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That sounds really familiar. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon the birds of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with life in it, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. This is literally the creation story. Can you put that chart up there? Uh, there's a parallel that you see over and over and over again between the creation story and this one. The, the waters of the flood cover the earth, and it's like creation is undone, because one of the first things God does is he separates the waters from the land. So in the flood, he undoes that, and then he recreates. Animals come out of the ark, and they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply just like they were in Genesis 1. Mankind is made in the image of God here. Mankind is reaffirmed in the image of God. And then mankind is blessed by God and told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a recreation story. And the author of Genesis, Moses, uh, knows literature. I don't. I'm kind of a moron when it comes to literature. But when I see a chart like that, I'm like, oh, okay, I got it now. Thank you. Thank you, people who are smarter than me. But God actually does this. He judges the world and he eradicates evil, right? There's no more evil in the world. Wrong. (laughs) Because Noah and his family are still there. If you just read the last half of, of Genesis 9, you're like, oh, I thought we were starting over on a good foot, but we're not. See, what happens is God recreates the world, and even though Noah is still sinful, he still gives them a calling. For Noah, it's not like, because you're a sinner, I'm going to put you on the sideline, and I'll do all this myself. God still uses man as, and woman as his agents in the world to bring his blessing. Despite their sin, he's calling us to be his image bearers. What is an image bearer? Uh, my favorite definition is somebody who reflects God's character into the world. Noah and his family are supposed to be people who reflect God into this world. 
Uh, as, as this multiplies and expands, and we now have lots of people since Noah, each of us are uniquely designed and gifted by God. And each of us uniquely reflect Him in a specific way. And we reflect Him in the places that He put us, in families, in workplaces, in neighborhoods, in apartment complexes, We are called by him in a specific time in the history of the world, in a specific place, to be an image bearer for him. (laughs) It's fun though, right? You're reading this promise, be fruitful and multiply. And by the way, don't kill people or eat live animals. You're like, why did we have to say that? Remember Cain's problem? be fruitful and multiply. If you kill somebody, it is literally the opposite of that. And it seems like the theme of Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 is murder is utterly rampant. And so we know that God is going to give far more commands to us as his people, especially in the book of Exodus. But he starts with this one because it's kind of a counterbalance. He's saying, be fruitful and multiply and stop this violence. Because be fruitful and multiply can't happen if you're continually murdering people. Uh, He also speaks to animals because it's interesting, this covenant that God makes, he doesn't just make it with Noah, he makes it with the whole world, including the animals. And God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he made, and so he actually cares about the animals he made. He gives the animals as food to Noah, but he's basically saying, don't be brutal about it. Um, people, you've heard stories, people who do terrible things to animals as children might not turn out well when they grow up. Uh, There's something about the dignity of all of life that God cares about. Even in giving animals for food, he's saying, don't be heinous about this thing. So all that said, he's speaking to something in the heart. If you're going to follow this command to, to bear his image, we've got to have a high value for human life in the same way that God does. So what do we do as image bearers in a broken world? Adam and Eve were called to be image bearers in a perfect world. Noah is called to be an image bearer in a broken world. So we reflect God's character in the world, but we also work against brokenness where God has given us the agency to do that. So what does it look like? I've got a friend and uh, I ask him about his work pretty consistently. He's fairly fresh out of college, just got his first promotion. And um, <laughs> he was talking about, um, he's, he's got one of those jobs that's seasonal. Uh, he writes some policies, and there's a certain time when all those policies need renewal. And that's a hectic time in the office. And he was telling me, I was asking about his relationships in the office, and he said there's this one woman who... Um, just literally has something bad to say about everybody. And so he says, how are you doing? And she talks terrible about this guy. He's like, okay, good talk. See ya. But he talked about this other friend that he has, and he said uh, the, other, the other day, this guy, well, in this conversation before COVID, this guy came to his desk, and he just said, sometimes when things get super chaotic here, I just like to sit with you for like five minutes because you're not anxious about everything. That seems like mundane, normal life, right? But that's being an image bearer where God put him. He's bringing peace into a place of anxiety. That's God's character. He's he's not saving the world in those five minutes, 
But a lot of us put superhero on image bearer, but that's not what it is. It is living normal life in a way that honors God and brings blessing to other people, even if that blessing is five minutes of peace in a chaotic moment. So what has God called you to as an image bearer? What has he called you to in your workplace when you have to get on another Zoom meeting? What has he called you to in your family? Uh, What about your extended family if you see them over this season? Is it reconciliation? Is it peace in a place of anxiety? Peace so far as you can lead to it? What does your little sphere of image bearing look like right now? God is calling you to push against the brokenness of this world, to bring his kingdom to bear here. But uh, God didn't just recreate. Let me just, I want to reiterate how I started that point. We're all sinners. We all come into this. (laughs) We're, We're told to push against the brokenness of the world, but we also know that we add to it. And some of us think, because of the brokenness that I've added, God could never use me. Again, I'm so glad Ryan is preaching the last half of chapter 9, not me. But the last half of chapter 9 is is a really broken Noah and a really broken family, but God keeps preserving even in the darkness. God can still use you regardless of the brokenness you've added into the world. He can still bring his redemption through you. You have not been sidelined by him. He has called you an ambassador, and that's an identity that your failure can't shake. You can't unambassador yourself. He's made you that. So, um, but he also makes a promise. This isn't just on you to try to muster up enough strength and courage to do it. Um, this is, let me read the last half of, of this section. So picking up in verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters of the earth shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. In chapter 6, right when Noah, uh, the narrative slows down with Noah, God says in verse 17, for behold, I will bring flood waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and 
of every living thing of all flesh. And then you know the story from there. He calls Noah to put the animals in the ark. God preserves a remnant of people and animals. And then this is the end of the story. This is the covenant. But what does covenant even mean? Uh, You hear the word covenant a lot in the Bible. And if you don't understand what that means, you're going to miss some really major pieces. Covenant is not contract. Covenant is not contract. Covenant is relationship. Uh, O. Palmer Robertson wrote a book uh, called Christ of the Covenants, one of the more famous books on covenant theology. And he says, uh, trying to define covenant is like asking you to define your mother. It's hard to define your mom. She's just your mom. And you know her when you see her. You know how she cares for you. You know who she is. So covenant primarily defines what a relationship is, but it's hard to categorize. Um, And uh, some of you may have a a study Bible called the ESV Study Bible, and, and this is the definition it uses. A covenant formally binds two parties together in a relationship on the basis of mutual personal commitment with consequences for keeping or breaking that commitment. So God is calling Noah into a covenant. So what was Noah's end of the deal? Build a boat. What was God's end of the deal? I won't destroy the earth again. Seems seems pretty fair to me. As far as the human side, right? Uh, A little piece of obedience. Save your life, and then I won't destroy the world again. Uh, But this covenant is the first time we see the language in Scripture, but it just expands from here. When you think of covenants in the Bible, they're not these individualized, separated uh, stories. It's more like an expansion of our understanding of how God relates with his people over time. It's, <laughs> I talked with somebody who said, I don't get into binge-watching shows and this person was a little bit older, and he said, when I grew up watching TV, you might not catch the next episode, and there's no way to rewatch it. So they all had to stand alone. Every episode stood alone. But now that we've got binging, you can have one narrative that literally would be watching like a 20-hour movie, right? But you can keep up with the narrative. Covenant theology is a lot more like that. It's an unfolding of the story, and each covenant you have is like an episode that reveals more of what's actually going on here. So you understand more of who God is and more of who he created us to be in our relationship as the covenants unfold over time. All right, so that's what's happening here. This is one of the first times God is explicit about it. Uh, How do I know that it goes over time? Uh, Deuteronomy 7 essentially reflects the song we just sang, right? Listen to this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. How long? to a thousand generations. His covenants don't have a two to three year lifespan. Thousands of generations. This covenant with Noah counts for us too. This is still God, how God relates to us in this covenant. So what is this specific covenant? Most basically, God preserves us through obedience. Uh, he preserves Noah because he built a boat, right? Chapters 8 and 9 expand on this covenant, and it's a covenant with the whole earth, not just Noah, that he will never destroy everything. Uh, Another theological term that you'll hear thrown in here is called common grace. 
that God's grace covers the whole world in a, in a way that he's not destroying the earth with a flood again, regardless of whether or not you're a follower of Christ. He is still preserving life in that way, specifically. The summary is, I will not do this again. But why will God not do this again? Uh, chapter 8, verses 21 and 22 explain it exactly. I will never again curse the ground because of man. And here's the big why. Why won't God curse the earth again? For the intention of man's heart is evil. What? From his youth. Wait, the reason that God won't destroy the world again is because man is evil? How does that make any sense? The reason God does not do this is because man is sinful. The justice of God is righteous. Listen to last week's sermon. All of our sin deserves judgment. But God is gracious in patience. In 2 Peter 3, Peter is talking about the flood as a paradigm for judgment of the world. And listen to what he says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. That, that's kind of like referring to hundreds of years of God preserving, even if we don't see it. So God's not slow in fulfilling his promise, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What this is essentially saying here is that God's bent is towards mercy, his bent is towards patience. His bent is to relent on judgment so that we would have life in him. In mercy, God delays judgment on sin so that we would run to him for rescue. I don't think we think about that as much. In, in, the, case, in the court of law here, usually justice is fairly quick, right? Right? God delays over and over and over again. He is patient so that we would run to him. God's covenant, this one and every one, is absolutely loaded and founded on grace. God's not holding our sin against us so that we would run to him. And he gives us a sign to remember it. He puts his rainbow in the sky. Out of the darkness of a storm, out of the darkness of the worst storm in the history of the world, Beauty literally radiates. God says, everything looks as dark as it could be, but I'm still at work. Remember me. Remember that sign. And as a matter of fact, the memory is to God. When God sees it, he relents. It's a reminder to him, but it's also a reminder to us. The wrath of God's judgment, though, it does have to pour out for sin. It has to. But he didn't destroy the world again. He destroyed the one through whom the world was made. In Christ, the entire flood of God's judgment came for our sin, every bit of it. And because he poured it out on Christ and drowned him in those floodwaters, ultimately we will never see the judgment of God if you're a follower of Christ. He took it all. He paid it all so that the judgment would never fall on us. So what do we do with that? This is one of the easiest applications for a preacher ever. Literally look at a rainbow. And remember 
the truth of God's grace. God put it in the sky in the day of Noah, and we can still see it today. Remember God's grace shines with beauty out of darkness. And remember that truth. There's another sign right in front of us, another sign of God's covenant. And he says, look at this and remember that I poured my judgment out on my son instead of you. Know it and feel that. But if we're honest, when we look at our sin, our tendency is to run to hopelessness. It's to say, I should be on the sideline. God could never use me. As a matter of fact, I'm not actually sure if he still cares. Things seem too hopeless. Uh, There's a book I read this year that really had a huge impact on me. It's called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. And here's what he says. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. We all have a tendency like Adam and Eve to run and hide when our sin gets exposed. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Our temptation is to run from him and he says, run to me. In our sin, we run to him and we find open arms. Zephaniah 3.17, this is what God thinks about you if you're in Christ right this moment. No matter what sin you're carrying with you, he thinks this about you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He is singing because he loves you so much. You can't undo that. You are not strong enough to undo that singing love. We just sang before this, he is for you. He is for you. I love how many times we sang it because I doubted after the first one and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. We keep singing it because it's true. I don't tend to believe it, but God is singing over you. He loves you. He's not throwing you out. His promise is stronger than you are. His grace is greater than all of our sin. Do you have room in your theology for a God who sings over you? That's the theology of Scripture. That's why he gives us these signs that are visible, that we can taste and feel and touch, that we can look in the sky and it can break through all of our constructs and say, I'm still here and I'm still working and I am crazy about you. Hopelessness naturally leads to despair, but these signs, they'll wake us up out of that despair and remind us of the truth. George Matheson, George Matheson grew up in the 1800s in Scotland. Um, when he was about 16, he found out that he had an eye disease that was eventually going to make him blind over time. He still went to college. His sisters uh, learned Greek and Hebrew alongside of him so that he could continue to learn and graduate. He fell in love. He got engaged. But as his blindness got further on, uh, his fiance said, I don't want to be married to a blind guy. And she left him, and he was heartbroken. And he looks out at his world, and, and as literally the hope is fading for his sight, he writes a hymn. That hymn is called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And he wrote it so that he would remember God doesn't let us go even in the deepest despair of hopelessness, when everything seems like it's lost. And verse 3 of that song holds on tight to the covenant of Noah. It says this, 
O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. That's the God we serve. His promise is never vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for the sign of your covenant that reminds us that your grace is greater than all of our sin. Lord, would you break through the hardness in our hearts? Would you break through the hopelessness in our hearts? And would you give us a peace and a hope in you that never ends? We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.